Welcome to the Angel Investors Network podcast, the first national angel group founded online in 1997, dedicated to perpetuating free enterprise, capitalism, and supporting the American dream. In addition, Angel Investors Network is the organization behind the powerful Mastermind Investment Club, dedicated to harnessing the philosophy of a mastermind to increase success with their investment portfolio. Laura Rubenstein is a social media and marketing strategist and founder of the Social Buzz Club. On the podcast, Laura brings together successful entrepreneurs to share with you how they grow their business, and you can too. And now, here's your host, Laura Rubenstein. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Angel Investors Network Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rubenstein, and digital media and marketing strategist. Today, we've got a fabulous guest. We're going to dive into the world of marketing for startups. And today, we have Mike Harris. And Mike is the president and CEO of Patina Solutions. Um, Mike is a prolific entrepreneur with a proven track record and having significant experience in building professional and technical service firms. Patina Solutions is his latest venture here. It's a six professional um, services startup since 1995. He's best known as the founder and former CEO of Jefferson Wells, which grew to 132 million in sales with 23 offices and 1,600 employees in five years. Welcome, Mike, how are you? I'm very fine, thank you, and it's great to be on the show. Glad to have you. Well, I want to get started with a little bit of background on you and get people to understand where you came from and help them then understand what they can do to grow their business. So tell us about where you grew up and how your childhood was and what took you into being an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's a, kind of an interesting story. So I grew up in a town called Racine, Wisconsin, which is where I still live today. And I'm from a family that did not have a lot of entrepreneurial background at all. My dad worked at American Motors all, you know, 30 some years. And um, so I didn't really come from a family of entrepreneurs. And I went to school to study accounting and took the CPA exam. So I wouldn't say I really came from, a, you know, a, a real heavy background of entrepreneurial spirit or experiences or anything like that. But I was about 27 years old when I took a job as the CFO of a venture capital firm. And that was using my background in accounting and finance, uh, but I was helping the venture capital partnership when they would evaluate companies that they wanted to consider investing in. I got to go to the Monday partner meetings and, and as a 27 year old, big wide eyes, I'd just sit and listen and I'd watch these entrepreneurs come in and pitch their companies. And I saw which ones were well received which ones were not, why they were. And I saw sort of how you sort of presented your business when you were coming in to try to get funding. So I didn't know it at the time, but that was really fantastic preparation for what was gonna come in my life later, which was to be an entrepreneur and go out and raise money. So that was a very, very valuable experience for me. And those guys were really good at what they did. They were truly venture capitalists that would put money into companies that were brand new and just getting started. and. Um, it turned out uh, to really be probably the most impactful and relatively short. I was there a couple of years, but so that's when I first really got my taste of what it was like to be an entrepreneur. What would you say your biggest takeaway from sitting around the table with all those guys that you learned about venture capital and what would work? Yeah, I, I think about that a lot uh, over the years. And, you know, I saw people come in 
um, you know, super cocky and, you know, they had the $2,000 suit on and they were coming in and pitching their deal. Uh, and they almost always got passed over for funding. Um, and it was sometimes people would come in and they would be, you know, scientists or uh, chemists or something. And they were really sort of awkward and sort of shy about how they presented, but they knew what they were talking about and they were passionate about it. And they were well prepared in terms of sort of the thinking about the business and where it was going to go. So I saw a lot of different people sort of come and go, but I really learned that you have to be prepared. You have to be somewhat humble when you come in. Um, you have to find a balance between confidence and cockiness. And, um, and, you know, and you just have to tell the story. You can't go on and on and on. There has to be good interaction. The guys generally had a lot of questions. They were super smart guys. So, um, and, and I think it was also just in the, in the way they presented sort of the valuation of the company when it was ridiculous, nobody was gonna put any money in. So I saw how they found a balance between asking for sort of the right amount of money and then what that money was gonna buy in terms of ownership of the company. So it was again, a terrific experience to have at 27 watching these companies and all these different styles and shapes of entrepreneurs come in and pitch. So how did you make the transition from sitting around the table at this company to getting started in your own venture? Yeah, so one day they brought in a gentleman that was going to start an IT staffing company, and his name was Larry Kane. And Larry was uh, just an entrepreneur that they were going to put some money behind, and they did. They put money behind his company to get it started, and they asked me uh, to help them with some of the finance stuff because they didn't need to have a CFO for this brand new company it was just getting started. So they said, in your spare time, you know, can you help Larry get a company started? I said, sure. And so that turned out to really be a fateful decision because when they were ready to recruit a full-time CFO into this new company, I raised my hand. Larry said, I'd love to have you be my guy. And uh, that was the real start of my entrepreneurial company experience. And that was a home run of a company. Uh, we built it into a national company. We took it public when I was 33 years old. We went public on NASDAQ and back in the days when people did that. And I led the IPO and it was a super experience. So that was really my first taste. I went to the company as a CFO. I knew about financing, but I never knew how you could build a national organization. And that's really what got me started then and actually working inside of an entrepreneurial company. Wow. So take us from there when you, you, you brought this company to this point and then how did you get to where you are now in your career? Yeah, so I was, I was on the board of this company was called Alternative Resources Corporation, ARC. And so I was uh, fortunate enough to be put onto the board of the company. And I, I really just was so fortunate to see how you built a company and how you built a sales force. And so uh, I really wanted to see, uh, could I start my own business and take what I've learned in this great experience as a young guy and start my own organization. And I figured since I understand accounting and finance and internal audit and stuff like that, and then I just had this great experience about how you start something, build it, govern it, capitalize it, take it to a good exit. I thought, you know what, I'm in sort of a unique position to maybe start my own business that really focused on accounting and finance. So that's when I started a company that's called Jefferson Wells. And I left ARC at the pinnacle. It was kind of a good time to leave. You know, everybody wants to leave on top. Uh, I stayed on the board. I was fortunate enough to be, you know, asked to stay on the board of the company, which I did. 
And at the age of 35, I left what everybody said was a dream job and started up a company where I was the only employee for the first couple months. Uh, but then that turned out to be a fantastic uh, success story called Jefferson Wells. So that was really how I got to then sort of being the person that was going to be the backable CEO. And I went out and I raised $3 million in venture capital to get uh, Jefferson Wells started. That was sort of in early 1996. And then, you know, the next five years were sort of magic for the company. We were in the right place at the right time. We got all the capital we needed. Once we started showing success, it was easy to raise more capital. So you obviously know what works in companies and what doesn't. And uh, what is your favorite part about running a company or starting up a company? I just like to see the, I, I'm used to starting all the companies I've ever started, started with nothing, no clients, uh, no, no built-in book of business. And, you know, that's, that's not for everybody because, you know, you're really going out there hoping your concept will work. Can you start to attract good talent? That's hard to do in the early years of a company when you're asking people to leave a, a company and come work for you when you're just getting started. Is it going to work? So I, I like just uh, building the, the, uh, the story, telling the story to people, uh, creating a vision that gets them inspired so that they are willing to come to a, a brand new company. Uh, and it's risky for people. I really understand that. So I try to paint the picture realistically, but exciting of what the future really can look like. Uh, and I see all kinds of different people come in with plans that they're going to be 300 million in sales in three years and forget it. It's not realistic. And then other people come in and say, after five years, we'll be at a million dollars. I'm like, no one's going to want to put money in your company if it's going to grow to a million dollars after all these different years of work. So I like to try to tell a realistic but still exciting story to people. And then I like to start to see the results. So it doesn't have to be crazy. In the first year of business at Patina, we build about $600,000 of hourly support. Uh, we, we thought we might do a million. Um, it could have been a couple million, it would have been fine, but it couldn't be zero. You know, as long as it was somewhere around 600,000 or a million or so, I was happy. But I like to see it start to take hold and all of a sudden clients are buying and then you're able to make sure you put the right match with the talented professionals that we put out to help our clients. So just when you start to see an idea that you put on paper, you went out and you sold investors on investing, when it actually starts to happen, it's really a very satisfying experience. So let's talk just a little bit more about what Patina Solutions does, because then I have a follow-up question to that. So we, we basically, uh, we attract talented executives. They have to have at least 25 years of experience. That's what we're looking for, highly experienced, proven people that are at that stage in their lives and their careers where they want to work on more of a gig kind of a engagement basis. It's for a lot of different reasons. Some people sold their company, they got all the money they need. Others are sort of going to take maybe an early package and they're in their 50s and they spent 30 years working at some Fortune 500 company and now they want to sort of go out and do their own thing. Those people are part of what we call Patina Nation. That's our big collection of talent. So we have a lot of great uh, uh, people with a lot of different backgrounds. We are sort of agnostic about the industries they come from. Uh, even the sort of the business functions they come from. So I got HR people, finance people, IT backgrounds. And then we, we sign folks up to work as we need them. So they work on demand. And our clients need help with projects where they want sort of extra pairs of hands or expertise that they can just get for a limited period of time and, and not have to hire. 
Uh, sometimes if a client has let somebody go or somebody quits and there's an open role or position, we can stick an interim executive in to help. And then something that's newer for us is we're using all these great experienced leaders to help develop the high potential talent that's coming up behind them in coaching and mentoring. So those are sort of the three ways that Patina is helping companies. That's brilliant. So with all this expertise that you personally have and that your talent pool has, I'm sure you all have seen some critical mistakes or have made some and learned from them. What mistakes do you find that um, startups and companies that are trying to get beyond that first million or even get to that first million are making? How much time you got? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, I, you know, I think I can talk about certainly things that I think, you know, I've made mistakes along the way and probably other people as well. But for me, it's always, um, I, I like to think big and I like to grow fast. And so I'm always very confident in the plans that, that I have and that we start setting out for the company. And, and I'm not afraid to communicate those plans. So I would say sometimes I have a tendency to maybe get a little overzealous and while I really try to live my life to under-promise and over-deliver, sometimes the opposite happens. And, you know, you're basing it on a model and a set of experiences you have. And again, you're trying to tell the story in a confident, exciting way without being, you know, too overzealous. And I'm certainly guilty of that in the early days. So that's a fine line that you walk because you are trying to get people interested in working for you, people interested in investing. So you have to have some something they want to be a part of and you have to tell the story that way but sometimes i feel like certainly me and probably other entrepreneurs maybe we, we need to temper a little bit about our growth uh, expectations that's certainly one and then on the talent side that's the biggest challenge it's not easy to work in an entrepreneurial environment and everybody thinks they want to be in an entrepreneurial company until they're in it and then they realize that there's not as much support as they're used to and you know, there's not the, the legacy or the brand that they might have come from from all these years. So I've made mistakes in hiring people that came from backgrounds that just weren't suited to sort of the state of the company. You know, the earlier stage of a company or sort of the change that happens all the time. They just couldn't really handle it. So to me, those are probably the biggest things that certainly I feel like mistakes I've made over the years is just maybe being a little overzealous all the time and then maybe bringing in people that weren't quite the right fit for the stage that our company was at. Mm -hmm. And as you're growing, how do you solve the problems that are arising? What how are those particular problems that they cause? Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, you, you have to have a strong conviction in what you're doing. That's really important. And that's with Patina. I know the model works. Um, I knew it from day one that it would be attractive. I saw the signs from the clients. So I think it's just, putting good people around you that help to sort of balance your talents, you, you know? I mean, if I was sitting here and I always told a story that was less exciting, I probably wouldn't have a company like this. Uh, but I think surrounding yourself with people who say, geez, Mike, you know, maybe we should be a little more conservative in the way that we're projecting results or communicating results. So I think that's a big part of it. And on the talent side, well, I tell you, I, I look back and I never really feel like I've made a bad hire, even though I have. Um, and so trying to figure out a little bit more about how people fit into the stage of your company, maybe doing some more uh, due diligence or homework uh, on that and really trying to get at whether the person can handle the kind of environment they're coming in. I think that's an important step to, to make sure because missteps in hiring are expensive 
they're they're tough on the culture. Uh, they they cost you time and money, and it just doesn't look good if you're bringing in executives and then or or salespeople or whatever the critical roles are in the company, and then it doesn't work out. So turnover for any company is really uh, difficult, but when you're an early stage company. Uh, it can really be impactful. I mean, some of the markets we're in, we have a couple of salespeople. If we hire poorly and we go down to one instead of two, that's 50% of the sales engine that's functioning properly. So it's really important to just try to find the right uh, talent that fits the stage of the company. Let's go to that point about finding the right salesperson or talent. Yeah. How, how do you identify, how would you know if someone's a fit and or not a fit? Yeah, it's probably the biggest uh, challenge to Patina, to a company like ours, and also the biggest uh, upside if we get it right. And so today we have about 20 of those people. We can have about 150 around the U.S. when we're finally done putting this model everywhere. Uh, we do what a lot of people would do is, you know, we certainly do sort of a, a profile and an assessment of the person and we sort of see how they fit against a classic sales profile. We have a lot of people in the channel interview these folks. So not just the hiring manager, I meet them, other people in the company do. And it's still a challenge. I mean, we still have turnover that's too high, but so we work on, um, on making sure they have enough acumen to be able to sell in our particular uh, model. We have to sell to CFOs and CEOs and supply chain leaders. You have to be able to talk uh, good general business with a lot of different types of people and backgrounds and industries. So we look for intelligence. We look for uh, some something in their background where they've had to be able to uh, sell a lot of sort of different kinds of solutions and critical. We don't want to hire people that have sold products before. That's not a bad thing. It's just not the best fit for going out and selling consulting and the kinds of solutions we have, you got to sort of help create these solutions sometimes. So we also look for people sort of quick on their feet that can then uh, craft and sort of uh, create solutions that maybe aren't as obvious as as, uh, as can be in some situations. It sounds like the best salespeople can almost be consultants themselves. Yeah, exactly. And several of them actually do have that background. That's great. All right. So what is the best advice you've ever received? Oh, <laughs> I guess, um, you know, to me, um, you know, just sort of try to manage the company uh, within its means. Uh, that That's a real important lesson for someone like me because I want to go faster than usually the organization can handle. So it's not just money, it's also the change. Uh, I love change and I rapidly change. There's a lot of, you know, new things that happen in our company, new solutions. And so I think, you know, I've been told a lot of times sort of slow down a little bit and let the company catch its breath and don't throw too many new things all at the organization at once. And, you know, that was really important for me to learn about change and how people absorb it. And I'm expecting people in a company like Patina that's trying to double and triple, you know, we have enough just in our core business. And then I'm always thinking of the next thing to add to the you know, to the toolkit and different ways to position or message or, and I think sometimes that, you know, that's one of the things I have to learn. Uh, and the advice I got was just let the organization absorb change before you heap another one on them. So that was really important for me to learn. I think I'm still learning it. <laughs> as long as you're aware of it, that's a good thing, right? Exactly. So what's the best advice you've given or like to give? 
when I when I, I get a lot of entrepreneurs that come to me and they're trying to raise money, um, you know, I think that uh, that being sort of fair. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I get a business plan in where they want two million dollars to buy, uh, you know, ten percent of their company, and I'm like, who's going to give you two million dollars? You know, you have to be realistic, and you have to be fair and a little bit humble. And when you're out raising money and asking people to give you their hard-earned uh, dollars to put into a company that's risky. So that's probably the most common advice that I give. I say, make sure your business plan is perfect. No typos, gotta be super well written. Um, bad business plans were out at uh, Winpoint Partners in the venture days. If it was a poorly written plan, out. No one would even take time. It could have been the cure for cancer and it probably wouldn't have got past the, the, the first sort of round of screening. So I say, don't let a uh, a sloppy, poorly put together business plan knock you out. You might have a fantastic business idea. So pay attention to detail. Make sure the plan is super well written. Um, not too long, not too short. Find the right sort of balance. And then when you're asking for the money, I always see a little too much greed sometimes. And then that just can turn people off so quickly. And uh, I just think that that's the most common thing that I see when people are coming in and trying to raise money and they want to know what should I do? How do I do it? And you mentioned the word be realistic. How does one know if they're realistic? Uh, they ask people like me and they ask uh, other advisors. And, you know, I will say this about most entrepreneurs. They're not afraid to come out and ask for your opinion and your help on stuff. That I'm encouraged by. And when I wrote my business plan for Jefferson Wells, I went out to a couple of key people and I said, would you please review this for me? And they did. And I, I teased, I mean, I got this one plan back. It had more red ink on it than, you know, anything I've ever seen. Uh, and there were changes and the guy said, do you sure you want these changes? Should I tell you what I think? I said, yeah, absolutely. And I took all that, put it into my plan and it made the plan so much better. It obviously worked. We got $3 million of money raised off of it. But um, that to me was a really critical lesson is, you know, uh, being, uh, being realistic about the, the plan, does it hold together well? Am I being too aggressive with the growth goals? Not enough. Ask some people that you trust to just take a look at it and just say, I want it unvarnished. I want to just hear what you think without any worries about it's going to hurt my feelings. Uh, and then, you know, if you're starting to raise money and, and you got a good plan and the first couple people or the first three or four, whatever, turn you down, chances are something's wrong. And, uh, and then, you know, I've had a lot of guys tell me over the years, maybe I priced it even too low because I got a lot of success. Went out and raised money and people said, I'll put 50 grand in, I'll put 100 grand in. So then you start wondering, did I price it too low and could I? And I always said, you know what, if I have to err on it when I'm raising money, I want to get it done. And I'd rather err on the side of giving more to an investor that's giving me their money to go out and start up a company that is risky. I, even if someone like me who's been through it and has had some success, they're all risky, just depending on the economy and the reception and the social media and change that's going on in the world, it's risky to start a company today. So I always try to get people to think about erring on the side again of a little more fairness or a little more generosity to the investors. Um, but, you know, so that's how I gauge it. If you'll know pretty quickly, 
Um, and, you know, by asking for the direct advice and, and being serious about that, and then literally testing it, and you'll be able to get some pretty good sense quickly if people don't think it's a good deal for them. Exactly. Good, good advice. So now that you're growing your business, what is working for you to attract more business? Yeah, I think the, the model with Patina just very quickly is we, we made the decision early on uh, because it candidly, it's what I grew up with. And that is this idea of having a dedicated direct sales team that goes out. And in our business, we're meeting with the leaders of the companies, big, medium, and small companies. And we're asking a lot of questions about how are things going? What are you trying to get done? Are you having any issues you're trying to solve? Is anything chronic that's driving you nuts? Um, you know, we, we, we try to get in and start to build a trusted relationship and listen to where there's opportunities where we might want to bring a patina person in to help out. So that's the model that we've decided. It's expensive. These are high quality professional people and they're out there and it takes them a while to get going. And once they do, they really start hitting their stride. So that's how we decided to go to the market versus trying to use just straight up marketing work to reach out to the market. And now we're doing a lot more sort of sales support work with marketing to just stay kind of a little more aware and a little more top of mind with all these people we meet with because we don't get a lot of chances. We might meet them once or twice. We got to make a good impression and then we got to have a way to sort of stay in front of them even when we're not physically in front of them. So that's how we're growing. And, you know, again, we've got 20 salespeople of which three or four are brand new. The plan when we have this model everywhere it can go candidly in North America, even, you know, including Canada, we could probably have about 150 of these managing directors, we call them. So that's our growth plan, it's clear. We have 20 today, we can have 150, and I want them all now, you know, and that's <laughs> one of my problems. Patience, my friend, yeah, right? I want them right now because the market's there, and well, we're doing that every day. Well, let's talk about the marketing you're doing to support sales. You said that's how you're using um, your other marketing tactics. What tactics are you using? Yeah, so we, we have a regular uh, social media feed through our LinkedIn programs. And so we were big believers and users of LinkedIn. Uh, we use it at sort of the highest levels. And we develop a lot of uh, nice variety of different social media posts that are, you know, a lot about content and people, you know, sort of just again, stay in top of mind. That's all I really want. I want them to see the patina name and, oh, yeah, you know, I should call those guys. I got a problem. But we also don't want to just do crass advertising on LinkedIn. So we do some that are just stories about how we've helped other companies, sort of case studies. Uh, a lot of it is based on some good content that either we create or somebody that we know has created. And I know that's fairly typical now, but that's something that we're doing a lot more on a pretty regular basis. We're doing our own podcast. We call them Patina Talks. And that's where we'll pick an exciting topic like uh, change management or knowledge transfer, something really relevant today, and uh, coaching and mentoring, and we'll get an expert in, just like we're talking now, and we'll do a 10 or 15 minute podcast and they'll use that to reach out to the market. We're doing that kind of thing. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of a uh, couple of other things, but those are the primary ways that we're doing marketing. And then, you know, we're always looking to tell the patina story or just talk to reporters that are doing articles about what's happening with the, the executive world, sort of the baby boomers. And there's so much of this independent executive or executive on demand. And we really believe we're in a position to lead that. And so that's now starting to get us a lot more uh, press opportunities. 
and of course, you know, our salespeople want as much of that kind of stuff as they can get. Anything that helps them to build uh, more awareness of the patina name and to stay sort of top of mind and in front of their clients, they'll take. Which tactics do you think have been most effective? I would say most likely a lot of the social media posting on LinkedIn has been the best. Um, it's kind of funny. We get out just about every week we do one, a couple of our people say, hey, so-and-so from this company called after they saw our LinkedIn post. And we said, oh, was it about change management? They said, no, it was about they need a guy in Spain. But they thought about Patina because they saw something that we posted. So that's great. We don't care you know, why they call as long as they call. And uh, so I would say that that's been the most well received by our salespeople. And, you know, we went through a time where we didn't do a lot of that. And now I think, you know, we're now starting a much more regular, consistent campaign. And I think that's important as well. Consistency. Absolutely. So the marketplace for executive on demand is getting a little more crowded. You mentioned, how are you getting your message out to stand out? Yeah, I think uh, it's a great question. Uh, I think, Right now, the way the company operates, we're big believers in a local uh, market model. That's what I came from. And uh, even while the world's sort of going virtual, we made the decision to still have an office in these cities. So let's take Milwaukee as a good example. I've got a great team of people here. There's four full-time dedicated managing directors and we show up. I mean, we go see our clients and we, we go to their offices and we sit in their conference rooms and we ask them questions and we want to eyeball them so that, uh, you know, because we're, we're asking them to tell us about stuff that's going on in their companies and it's not all rosy. And so that's hard enough if you show up and get to know them and are in person with them. I can't imagine trying to do that over the phone or uh, online. I mean, if somebody sent me a message and said, we can help your business, what's your biggest problem? And I never met them, I wouldn't tell them in a million years. So we we're sort of a, a blend between kind of old school, show up, have people in the market that live there and work there and know the, know the folks. Uh, and then we're trying to do a lot more of the stuff that is a little more modern in terms of sort of our marketing approaches. And we even have this uh, new sort of coaching and mentoring solution that's kind of sort of like a match.com for coaching and mentoring. All of our folks are hand invited, but hand picked, but they're in a system that then our clients, uh, uh, mentees and coaches can literally go in and try to find the person that they want to match up with to work with to help them in their sort of their, their career and talent development. And so that, that's a nice sort of new modern play. But most of the work that we're doing is local, Milwaukee executives helping Milwaukee companies. Even though we do work all around the world, the vast majority of the work's gonna be done locally. So that, that's kind so, of been So the most effective lead generation for you, is that actually your salespeople picking up the phone or is it more inbound from calls? I would say it's more us reaching out in any way we can. You know, we use a lot of, uh, you know, cold calling is very hard. It's always been hard. It's just not a big part of the way we do it. We look for other people that we know that know somebody we want to meet and we do our best to ask in a polite way for an introduction. Those warm introductions are so much more effective at getting in because the people that we need to meet that make decisions about Patina, they're at the top levels of these companies and they don't take cold calls and you got to get through uh, an existing relationship that may be a joint relationship. That's how we really work to set up those meetings and 
but you know, sometimes it might just be, hey, I don't know anybody in this company and my responsibility is to get Patina in there and I'm just gonna call somebody and, and just see if they'll take a meeting with one of the fastest growing companies in our space in the country and maybe they've heard of us before. So, you know, we're not afraid to do that, but we really rely on the extensive networks that the, the, the company has to try to help us with those warm introductions. And has the extensive networks been built through Patina or do they, are you hiring people for their network? It's a little bit of both, uh, but the real power of Patina is we have so many thousands of these executives that are in Patina Nation ready to help us on demand. And everybody's got a network. You can't, you can't have 25 years or more of experience and not have a pretty good network out there. So uh, it's, it's sort of two pronged. Our own sales team have their networks and everybody's network is, you know, it it's, takes a lot of work to keep it fresh. But what we're, uh, I think, getting better at is being able to utilize the networks of all of the people that are part of Patina. That's where the real power comes from. There's gold there, sounds yeah, exactly. like. So what is your biggest marketing challenge now? I would just say brand awareness. You know, when we go into a company uh, and we meet somebody for the first time, the chances are pretty good they haven't heard of us before. Now that's a little less uh, of an issue in markets like Milwaukee where we've been for a while, but in a lot of places that's what happens. And so I think just getting the name out there um, is, you know, and having a little bit of awareness so people might say, yeah, I've heard of those guys. Even that's been a little bit of a challenge for us, but uh, part of that's just because we've put most of our resources into the actual sales uh, folks on our team versus really trying to build this awareness before we show up. Most of the awareness from us comes from getting access first. And then they're like, boy, I'm really glad to know about you folks. I can see lots of situations where we might want to tap into the heavy experience of your folks on demand. And uh, so I feel like we show well when we show up and when we get the audience, but getting that audience still remains the biggest challenge for us. Makes perfect sense, but congratulations on all of your success to date and the growth. And I, I have the sense from your energy that you're just going to grow much, much faster and further for, to, into your dream and your vision there. So oh, I'm honored to have had this time with you. Thank you so much for being our guest. Wishing you like the best of success from here on out. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. You're welcome. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer.